0: Welcome to the 66th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week we're talking about diminishing returns, or how doing more work doesn't have a literal correlation with more progress. There's a, an old saying, an old rule in computer science, saying that the first 90% of the work takes the first 90% of the time, and the last 10% of the work takes the other 90% of the time. And this is painfully true.
1: Yes, you're never quite done without with that coding project, are you?
0: Uh the the quote is attributed to Tom Cargill at Bell Labs. He first coined the term a long time ago. We'll stick a link into the show notes for the 99 the 9090 rule, which is what it's colloquially known as. And the astute listener will realize that if you have a ninety percent, ninety percent that's a hundred and eighty percent. And yes, um, most of these projects are the kinds of things that when you start working on them, you think you have a good handle on what it's going to take to get it done, but there's always some wrinkle, some piece, some other operational work, something else that happens and you never quite get to the end or it takes so much more effort to get to the end than you ever thought it would. And this is true in software development, this is true in ops, this is true in DevOps, but honestly, this is true in pretty much every walk of life. If you are studying for an AWS exam, if you're studying for a a college exam, if you put in half of the work to get every question absolutely right, you'll probably get a passing grade. You put in another half the work or another 25% of the work and you keep on ratcheting up, but it takes a monumental increase in effort to go from just passing to 100%.
1: I think a lot of us in this uh, career path had a similar experience with... Uh, primary school or high school, where as long as you're there and kind of vegetate, maybe do some homework, you make, you know, B's, a few A's, reasonable, passable grade. But if you really want to make straight A's or be the valedictorian of your class, all of a sudden the amount of work really ratchets up. And really it was high school. I just wanted to have some A's and B's and get out.
0: I was in the same boat. I never, I never devoted the time to get straight A's because I was, I, I realized you could put in roughly half the effort and still get mostly A's and B's. And I was like, Oh, well that's That's good. And I can do extracurriculars and I can enjoy my life otherwise. And I had friends who killed themselves to get straight A's, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, the 9090 rule also ties into the the concept in agile of relatively done, which is something I hadn't heard of very much until recently. And it's the idea that you've started a software project and it's code complete or it's done, you've done all the technical work on it, but it's now waiting for a rubber stamp from somebody else. It's waiting for user acceptance testing, it's waiting for other pieces that either through estimation failures or through other other hurdles of the organization, nobody really realized how much work those pieces were. And so it sits and it waits and the ticket as described is done, but it's not done and you can't close it because you can't, you can't hand over heart, say this is actually finished. Now there's a big chunk of work left to do, but what was in the ticket is finished. Ah,
1: feedback loops.
0: I, you just in general,
1: I have a hard time closing tickets. And I get in very much the same situation. I've done most of the work, part of the work, or the task is really relatively done, but there's a couple loose threads that I'd really like to circle back on or delegate or, you know, waiting for for a feedback loop from. And those last few threads just either take forever to happen or don't happen. And somebody comes around and says, hey, Jack, you've got, you know, 200 open JIRA tickets. What's going on here? And it just, it grinds my gears to to forget and not do some of those final completion tasks.
0: Yeah, and for me, a lot of the complete, the final completion tax, tasks are when you were writing the ticket initially. You were thinking, hey, it would be really great to have these three teams sign off on something. And when you have finished the work and you go to one of those teams and they say, oh, wait, wait, wait. We really needed the encryption keys to be managed by the customer instead of by the the cloud provider. You're like, oh, well, let's open another ticket to get that set up and going. And so there's another ticket tracking that work, but you can't actually close the old ticket because it isn't finished. And then (laughs) things keep on tracking and moving, and it falls out of your mind because another fire catches somewhere else or something else happens. There's something reprioritized. And then... And I'm not kidding. This has happened to me more than I care to admit. Your boss comes to you and says, so there's this ticket that's two and a half years old that looks like it's done, but it's still open. Can you help? And you look at it and you realize, oh, oh yeah, has nobody ever actually closed off that last bit? It's still sitting there pending, waiting for somebody to, to come by and bless it.
1: There was a documentation example that would have been really useful to have that you meant to write. You've got half of that documentation code a Git repo somewhere. It's just not done. And if I may go off on a tangent, what really grinds my gears is closing out the old ticket and opening a new ticket for that specific task. It's, you close one your ticket, you open another for the... Grr.
0: But in that case, at least the new ticket encapsulates, at least to the best of your knowledge, the entirety of the work and not Represents all the work that happened before. It's just the hey, there's a documentation step that needs to be written, or there's a security and compliance wants somebody to sign off on the validation of this particular thing. It's not the hey, we're upgrading this piece of software, which somebody looks at and says, "But we upgraded that two years ago. We're fine, right?" So there's- yeah,
1: and then your diminishing returns happens all over again. True, and there there is a professional point where. You're developing services or features for an internal team, an internal customer. There's a line of support that you have to draw in the sand somewhere. It's a bit different if I, who run lots of Prometheus services, was running sort of a Prometheus as a service for pay structure on the Internet someplace. You know, I might want to spend some extra time making sure that last bit of documentation is tweaked up. But inside a, an, an operation shop somewhere else, there's a point where I expect folks to, to hit me on chat and say, Jack, I need some help with uh, X, Y, and Z. And I'm usually glad to help them. Instead of having absolutely complete professional documentation.
0: And again, it's finding that balance because if you do most of the work, you can get it done pretty quickly and it's it's functional. And then another chunk of work and you're closer. But if you want to cross every I or cross every T, p- <laughs> exactly, if you want to get everything absolutely completely done, it's a lot of extra work. And I don't know of any shop that is overstaffed, that has more engineering talent or more man hours than it needs to get the job done. Every shop I've talked to, every group, every team, every, every conference I've been to who I've talked to, anything about this, everybody's like, yeah, I'd really love another person. I'd really love another three engineers. I'd really love another whatever it is. So you're, you're trying to balance the, okay, this is mostly done. I mean, there's a couple examples I could use in the documentation, but I could also start working on the next piece of whatever the stack is it has to get that's on fire right now. Um, my other favorite piece for time estimation for stuff, because that's the other piece of this, is how do you say, okay, I'm I'm upgrading Kafka and it's going to take me two weeks to get all the things done, and then three days into it, something catches fire, and you can't get back to it for six days, and somebody says, oh, well, you're, you're going to be done in two days, right? And you're like, no, 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 I I started, I've got two days of work. See, my into time
1: it. estimate was not wall clock time.
0: Yeah and it is very difficult especially when you're talking to other teams to effectively communicate no really when we say we spend i don't know 50% of our time fighting fires rather than doing up- rather than doing development work as a devops team people look at you and they're like that can't be that much you you must be exaggerating and you're like no it's sometimes it's as bad as 90% fighting fires but okay i'll i'll do what i can and you smile and you keep on working on it but the time estimates go out the window very quickly
1: i'm always i always try to make clear that time estimates are if i could sit heads down 100% of the time i could get project x done in 2 weeks and i'll usually take the the scotty factor approach and multiply that by 4 so if I could be more or less head down, maybe eight weeks, two months. And and usually that helps compensate for some of the, the wall clock time versus actual time you get to, to focus
0: on a project. Yeah. Because this is an interrupt driven business. If you're in ops or DevOps, it is very interrupt driven. If you're purely in programming and development, there's, there's less of that. There, your time is more predictable. I'm not saying your time is entirely predictable because that's that's a fantasy as well. But it's more schedulable and more estimatable. But the moment you have operational support to do or support engineering or however the, the phrase is these days, it becomes increasingly difficult to give any kind of sane or useful estimate of time. And so I I try as hard as I can to say, our goal is to have... This piece of it stood up by a date, and I pick a date that's far enough in the future that I really honestly think I can get that done. And knowing what knowing what I know about our our support load and the fires we have to fight and all the other things that are going on, because otherwise people will be saying, Well, I mean, if it only takes three hours of work, you should be able to get it done today, right? It's like <laughs> that's nice, but no. That'd be nice.
1: Eight weeks to refit the ship, sir. But for you, I'll have
0: it done in two. The other piece of the diminishing returns work that comes in is very much on the, the measurable side, and that is things like SLAs and SLOs. If you have promised in your SLA or your SLO that you're going to have a certain level of availability, a certain level of uptime, a certain level of whatever it is, as you increase your availability to ensure it the amount of money and the amount of engineering time that you put into it goes up dramatically
1: exponentially
0: so getting 1 9 getting 90% availability is child's play anybody like any server you run in your house can do that pretty easily 99% uptime okay that's still not terribly difficult but it's getting it's getting harder uptime is yet harder, and as you add nines to that, you're adding all kinds of things, because you're not just adding, is power available and did the server not crash, but you're also adding, do you have redundancy, do you have failover, do you have load balancing, do you have all kinds of other pieces? How long does it take that VM to boot again? Can we stagger the the reload properly so as we're rolling out upgrades to things, because you have to do upgrades to things while the thing is running, and make sure that you never screw up something that's backwards compatible. You never pull any of those those things, and the cost and the and the compati- complexity, the cost and the complexity rise amazingly quickly, mm-hmm. dramatically. And my 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 easiest kind of work story that goes into this is that a number of years ago, I was building a, I was revamping the pager system for the university I was working at, and they had both. Pager lines that, like a phone would, like an analog phone would actually dial out to the the tap service, and they had we had implemented SMS gateways, and these SMS gateways were just basically cell phones plugged into the servers in the data center, and the antennas patched up so they could get good signal, and they, the data centers were far enough away that one tower being down wouldn't hurt another, but these things weren't great. I mean, they were they were functional, but they weren't great, and it's okay. Well, how do we code in for okay we make sure we have, we, we have two servers running so if one is down the other one will take over if one of the phones is having an issue well we can detect that we can take over for the other we can restart it with software and we can do those things if a tower is down well if a tower is down that's a lot harder because you know we, we think we've got everything right but if they shift their load around we can't predict that and then what happens if the, if the provider goes down what happens if, if at&t for example has a service outage well we can't like we can get okay we we could in theory get more phones on different providers and then as as we were looking through this the cost and complexity kept on going up and it's okay well what happens if the nuchio server itself goes down well it's a usb powered thing it's got a battery in it so it should be up for a few minutes but how do we make sure that it gets the signal to do the connection to and at one point i finally just stopped and said we're at this point engineering for ridiculous corner cases If we're in a position where all of the AT&T network network services are down or both data centers are down or there's going to be news reports like this is going to be a major event and we will find out from the news, not necessarily from our pager system, but it also won't really matter as much because the university university will be underwater on fire in the bottom of an earthquake valley, like whatever it is, it, it won't. The fact that we were can watching an CNN and CNN says this is a page for Britain Dozenzorf. Yeah, the please report to work. <laughs> and that's when I, I finally that's when I finally really realized that lesson of no spending more time in engineering and money on this is not actually helpful and would be detrimental because the complexity of the service is now rising very quickly, and it's trying to cover some really interesting corner cases that don't matter.
1: And that also sort of ties in with understanding the failure cases that you can design for as well. And finding a relationship between the, the failure cases that you're willing to design for and your uh, SLO. I'm sure there's
0: a couple books that probably have yet to be written on that topic. And as always, this is one of those places that if you're looking for a good baseline, The Practice of Network Systems Administration, is that the book title?
1: It's on my desk. It's on my desk. It is the practice of system and network administration. Thomas A. Lemonsetti.
0: That is a invaluable resource to look at for trying to understand and plan some of the nuances. If you have a, like a, a project-specific piece of this, that's a great place to look for tips and pointers about how do I add this to my backup system or my user account creation system or my ticketing system or whatever it is you're, tr- you're trying to do because that book covers in wonderful detail. A lot of the, the more interesting pieces of this.
1: And I'm being paged by CNN and told Limoncelli is the correct <laughs> pronunciation. I think, Hey, somebody like write in and tell me if that's right. I keep this book on my desk. It is the Bible as far as as where my career is and i was thumbing through it the other day looking at chapters on documentation as i had some questions about you know is my documentation up to par i get feedback that feels like this maybe there's some good advice in the book and i'm thumbing through the chapter and realizing how much of this that i kind of follow this out of out of rote out of experience and then there's just a couple little sentences about hmm how do i integrate this interesting feature into my documentation would that have solved some of the feedback questions i got and yeah i can't recommend that book enough i've got the second edition i think there's a later edition now.
0: we will find it and stick it in the show notes switch show notes are for? And this is a short episode. We don't have a lot of other examples to cover here. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 66th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks
1: and good night.